Welcome to The Gamble in the Glory, where we hear founders tell the story of growing their companies to become industry leaders within the sports betting, fantasy, and iGaming industry. The Gamble in the Glory is presented by Segev LLP, a full solutions law firm purpose-built for the gaming and betting industry. With decades of experience and a truly global reach, Segev LLP is your go-to for expert legal solutions for all challenges commonly faced by companies from every industry vertical, including payments, blockchain, esports, affiliates, data, and more. If you need help with private equity funding, public markets financing, licensing, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, commercial deals, or other business needs, these are your guys and it's what they do. Whether you're just getting started or have already scaled to become a stalwart of the industry, discover how Segev LLP can add value to your business and help you achieve your goals. Learn more at www.segev.ca. All right, the green light is on, which means the newest subseries of the Betting Startups podcast has officially launched. As regular listeners will know, every week we speak with the founders of promising early stage companies in the space. And 80-something episodes into it, we've covered pretty much every angle of the wider betting, fantasy, and iGaming ecosystem. This new series, which we're calling The Gamble and the Glory, will still feature conversations with founders of companies in our space. But instead of them being at the earlier stage, The Gamble and the Glory will feature founders that have successfully led their companies to scale to become industry leaders. The conversations in this series will focus on our guests' entrepreneurial journeys, stories of how they've scaled their companies, and the lessons learned along the way that I hope can provide inspiration and insight to the many other founders that will listen to it. For the debut episode today, I'm extremely pumped to welcome the co-founder of a company that has become part of the backbone of regulated betting and iGaming with its suite of products and tools that help organizations satisfy KYC requirements and prevent fraud. Of course, I'm talking about GeoComply co-founder David Briggs, who joins me from Vancouver, which officially means I can say you're across the pond from me here on Vancouver Island, David. Welcome to the debut episode of The Gamble and the Glory. How are things going in Vancouver today and how have you been keeping? Yeah, no, life is is fine here in the bustling metropolis of Vancouver. And as I'm sure it is on the Pacific Island that you live on. I mean, everyone dreams of the Pacific Island and you, you managed to pull it off. <laughs> it's uh it's a charmed place to be no doubt about that but uh really happy to have you here david uh excited to dive into a lot of parts of your story that again as i mentioned i hope other people listening can can derive some insight and inspiration from and obviously geocomplies a name that's become canonical with the regulated industry but maybe not everybody knows your story and the origins of it so i'd love to dive in there just as a starting point today and Maybe we can talk about your own career beginnings and how you got started uh, within this industry and kind of where you were at that time in your life that uh, made you take the leap into co-founding GeoComply. Yeah, gosh, where to start, right? So I, I guess I'll start my entry into the gambling industry, I suppose. So I was working at a bank in the UK called Barclays, Barclays Bank, and, and I was helping on a project to, to look at the impact of the internet on a bank like Barclays. And that was in 98, 97, which is really when the dot-com boom was was beginning, certainly in Europe. And I saw a job advertised to go and work for Labrooks in their soon-to-be-formed digital unit. And I didn't know anything about the gambling industry at all. So I, I wrote a note, uh, not applying for any of the jobs, but just simply saying, look, I think you're in a very interesting area. This is what I do. I'd love to come and chat to you. And they invited me in and, and somehow inexplicably, I ended up being employee number one and responsible for starting up 
Labrix's online venture in 1999. And uh, yeah, I think that story is probably similar to the one that many folks could tell about certainly digital businesses and suddenly getting sucked into a disruptive sector and you know running around like a headless chicken and not really knowing what you're doing and somehow trying to scrabble to survive. And I was there for seven and a half years and it was an amazing experience and, and, and Labrix really gave me insights into so many different things. We, we did so many things for the first time and were pioneers of, of lots of different areas of market expansion, you know, payments, game designs, you know, interfaces, live betting, streaming, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I enjoyed that, but it was just super, super, super intense. And by 2007, I was really burnt out. And I, I, I just, I quit and I took a role working in Asia as a consultant and wanted to get away from what I'd been working on as far as possible, because I didn't want to compete with something that I put my DNA into. It wasn't my company, but I felt like a founder. I felt like I'd really been there since the beginning and I put everything into it and I didn't want to compete with something that I helped create. So I, I didn't want to go and take a job with William Hill or Party Poker or whoever the competitors were at the time and just compete against the thing that I built and the team that I built and worked with. So I went out to Asia and did something completely different. I worked on wacky projects like opening up retail sports betting in the Philippines and poker rooms in Macau and sports betting in Vietnam and lotteries in Thailand. And I can't say that all those projects were like enormously successful, but it was interesting to see just how things could happen differently to the way that I had got used to making things happen. Labrooks was very structured, very, you know, you do the hard work, you never cut a corner put the focus into the detail and you know that was the that was the work ethic and and I realized there's a whole bunch of ways to succeed not necessarily by working yourself to the bone but being a little bit smarter and allowing yourself a bit more space to actually build relationships with people not for the task at hand but you know for the future and whatever may come and just generally learning a little bit more about different ways to succeed than the ones that I had seen and the ones that I had employed. Around about that time, I, I met Anna Sainsbury. She was working on projects in Asia as well. So we spent some time together and one thing led to another. And we ended up married and working on a project in Greece and Italy. And then I got transferred by that client to work on a project in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C. was going to be the first legal gaming platform in the U.S., in the U.S., in the District of Columbia, seven miles by 10 miles. And my job was to try and put it live. And I mean, the politics in, in DC, which everyone knows are, are very intense. And the one thing that this project did is it unified the entire gambling industry, whether it was tribal, lotteries, commercial casinos, international offshore gaming. Everyone was united in trying to kill this project. They did not want the DC, DC lottery to go live with iGaming. So it, the project didn't proceed, but in trying to put it live, Anna and I had wrestled with the same problem in that she was looking at the problem from a regulatory compliance perspective, which was her background. And she was trying to explain to me what you had to do in order to be compliant. And one of the rules was, well, you had to be in the District of Columbia. And if the geolocation didn't work and someone could come on from Maryland or Pennsylvania or Virginia, then it was five years in jail for the operator and for the payment method used by the patron. And this would be actively tested. Like if it wasn't like tech, uh, tick box kind of compliance, someone was going to go around and test it. And if it didn't work, you were going to be on the 60 minutes news. Um, so if someone could spoof you with a VPN or a remote desktop program or any other sort of emulator, then the whole project would not fly. And I, I spoke to quite a few different companies that, that were in the geolocation space and nobody would touch it. Nobody would would want to work on that project because 
nobody had built a solution that was resilient against spoofing. And the perception at the time was you never really know where someone is on the internet. So there's no point even trying. You just make a bit of an effort, but you can't do more than that. And we had to do more than that. And there was no there was no solution. So and it also had to be a good user experience, right? It couldn't be like sort of military grade GPS units that would get posted to your house and you'd plug it into your desktop. I mean, it just wasn't going to work. Um, so that project died a death, and Anna and I were sort of coming to the end of you know period as consultants and kind of bored of working for other people's projects and not really having control and ownership. And so we kind of had this idea that well, if iGaming was going to come or digital was going to come to the US gambling industry in this broader sense, then it was it was going to be state by state. Our view is it had to be state by state. It was going to be a state's rights issue and wasn't going to be federal. So it was going to need this state by state geolocation system. And it didn't exist. So we thought, okay, well, let's build it and hope that the market arrives, which 99 times out of 100 is a story that ends with, and the market didn't arrive and we ran out of money and went bust, right? But in our case, a year and a half later, or a year and a bit later, Chris Christie signs New Jersey's iGaming bill and says to everyone, you've got to be live in six months. And everyone was going to go live on the same minute of the same hour of the same day in one go. And so we went to talk to all these, these operators and said, hey, we've got the solution. They said, no, that's way too much. Nobody wants that. That's totally unnecessary. And we said, yeah, okay, no, we get that. But the thing is, they have these rules, UGEA, YRAC, blah, blah, blah. And Sheldon Adelson, who's this sort of big, scary beast, who's adamantly trying to kill the iGaming industry, is got his people running around saying, you know, geolocation doesn't work. If they go live in Jersey, they'll be playing in Utah and Nevada. And if the geolocation doesn't work, this whole thing will get shut down. And after a while, the European operators that were planning to go live in Jersey, they, they understood that. And they realized, actually, this was different to Europe. And the geolocation piece wasn't going to be like tick box compliance. It, it was critical. And it's interesting when you have an idea as a founder and you, you're trying to get that product market fit, which everyone talks about. Mm -hmm. And you have this idea and you say, look, such and such that I've done is really important. It's going to be really necessary. And then nobody cares. No one's interested. And Anna and I had been wandering around saying, you know, geolocation for compliance for regulated iGaming in the US is really important. And everyone would be ignoring, ignoring us. And then finally, there came this moment when our clients had actually already contracted with us and said, okay, fine, we'll do it, we'll do it. And they were preparing to go live. And it was only when they were really close to going live did they fully understand the consequence of the geolocation not working. And then they would grab me by the lapels and say, do you know how important geolocation is? I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. Now that you mention it, it is quite important. And uh, it's only when they really got the risk that it all made sense, like the amount of time and effort we put into building a system that would have that confidence and would deliver it, not just on paper, not just in a marketing brochure. Um, and then New Jersey went live. The most you know, horrifying moment of my life was you know, the time building up to that launch and our products had never gone live anywhere in the world. And suddenly we were going live in Jersey and like, all, you know, Fox News was there and the BBC News was covering it and it was on MSNBC and cameras were set up in Atlantic City. I was like, shit, I really hope this works. Otherwise we're <laughs> dead, right? 
And I've been in the industry a long time, so my customers knew me, right? They knew me. They I had long relationships with them, and I thought my reputation is dead meat. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know. Forget the money and everything else. It's like I'll never work in this sector again. Um, so I remember that's the most stressful time in my in my career. Anna remembers it like she really enjoys it. She loves the stress and the pressure, um, which is just as well. So we just had our first child in the in August, and we went live in November. So you got first baby you building up to this enormous launch, you know, absolute living nightmare. And I'm pushing this, you know, this push chair up and down the beach in Brigandine Beach, just south of Atlantic City, or maybe north, I can't remember. And, uh, you know, blue skies, cold. Anna's just sitting at the kitchen table in this this rental in Brigantine with our developers, so standing over them with a whip. You know, saying, what do you mean the servers won't come online? What are you talking about? And I'm out there pushing the child. I mean, I mean, living nightmare. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. And but we did it, you know. And and I think incrementally from there, we we worked with multiple operators, multiple business models, multiple jurisdictions, and and we opened these markets up with them as partners, one by one. And and the thing about it is. Nobody said it was possible that we could do what we did. And that's why they said the market wouldn't work. But we did make it work and the market did work. And, and now 10 years later, it's all pretty established, you know, and I, I think it's uh, it was a great adventure. Would I want to do it again? No, no, no. God, one, no. And, one and done, right? <laughs> one and done, one and done, yeah. No, I that, that, that child, though. I did have a second child. Don't fancy another startup, but I did have a second child. No, that, that, that's a hell of a story, David, and quite an arc to it. You know, I, I want to get a sense from you now. I mean, talking about, I guess, the, you know, that moment in New Jersey, which really put GeoComply on the map and, uh, you know, probably at that moment really proved the product market fit, right? At least in the eyes of your partners who really understood at that moment that they needed this solution. Um, from there on, and maybe up until, let's say, PASPA was repealed in 2018, maybe those five or six years in there, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, the company evolved and expanded its services and really established its footprint and prominence in the industry? Yeah, I think it's, it's always worthwhile mentioning this to, to founders because there's a truism that startups don't really know what they're about for the first seven years. And back in the old days, we used to talk about internet years, because when you did stuff on the internet, things move so fast, right? And it was one of those long, painful moments when we'd been really frugal in how we set up the business. We bootstrapped it as long as we possibly could. We never took a lot of money. We only took what we needed. And we found a way by hook or by crook to, to get to break even. And for five years, we were just bumping along. And in that time, we ground out the smallest incremental bits of growth, like a DFS site here or a horse racing site there or going live in Delaware or, you know, going live with WSOP Poker in Nevada. And we were so hungry for growth in those lean, lean years that, you know, we, we tried to expand into film and TV because Netflix was know in the headlines for allowing vpns to access you know their u.s service from everywhere even though they have rights to the u.s and we ended up building a product for the streaming sector so so now i think it's easier to name a well-known streaming platform that that doesn't use us than i mean like we're just everywhere whether it's amazon or bbc or i i'm not even sure i can tell you the names of the other ones but pretty much all of the big guys use us for streaming um, and we moved into that space just to go for growth, just to, and every time we did it, we'd like, we find a bit of extra revenue, but we find a bit of extra cost. And we just continued on that break even, but we were growing and we could have 
We could have stopped our investment and actually had a bit of profit, but we didn't. Everything went into product innovation. Everything went into market expansion. Everything went into like adding the skills and talents. As whenever we could afford to add a new skill or talent, we did. And then we tried to get the most out of it. But in those years, I think as founders, you learn how to be good at what you do. But you also, if you don't start humble, humility is hammered into you. Because I used to go to events in, in London or, or London folks would come to Vegas and they knew me from running Labrooks. It's a huge enterprise. We're making about 100 million US dollars, I think, in EBITDA the last year that I was there. And they'd look at me running this tiny little wonky, nerdy geolocation security company. And not that I, I mean, I wasn't even running it, right? I think I was like chairman or something and, and I was CEO. And, and they'd look at me and they'd say, you know, what else are you doing, David? Because that surely isn't all that you're doing. I'm like, you have no idea. I'm doing like 60, 70 hours every week, you know, and I, I'm covering for so many executive jobs because we can't afford all these executive people. You know, we didn't have our first accountant for like five years. We didn't have our first lawyer full-time for like eight years. We didn't have a full-time marketeer for seven years, something like that. Um, we always had to do all this ourselves. And uh, it, it's really, really humbling because there's no glamour, there's no glory. And you're you're always trying to find a way to, to be in the places that are relevant for you, but you can't really afford to buy your way in. So you've got to sidle your way in. At one point, our way of getting our name out there is I, I used to, I, I wrote for the gaming publications like iGaming Business and Global Gaming Business. And, and I would I would do the interview. So I would find someone that they wanted to interview because they didn't want to interview me. They had no interest in Joe Black. So I would do an interview with someone that they wanted to get interviewed. And I would, you know, do the interview, do the Q&A. And in doing the Q&A, I'd get to know the person that I was trying to talk with, right? So, you know, those people that maybe there are customers already, maybe I wanted them as customers and they wouldn't really have any time to talk to me, but they would, you know, clear their afternoon for me to interview them for a magazine, right? And so like at one point, Anna said to me, what are you doing this weekend? I said, I got, I've got to write five articles. And I just churning these articles out all the time. Um, just as a way of, of getting us into the right places and getting our name and building relationships and so on. So those years, those long, lean years, they do teach you how to be good at what you do, how to operate whatever it is that you've built, how to operate it well. And um, it's the very difficult, hard yards. And, uh, you know, thank God Pasper got struck down because I don't really know whether I would just still be stuck in this trough of hard, hard yards with not much return if it hadn't. Yeah, no, I think there's some interesting lessons in there, David. And, and for me, hearing that story, you know, one of them is just staying in the game and doing what you need to do to stay in the game. And look, I mean, here in 2023 now, and, and maybe it's because I, I see a lot of pitch decks, but, you know, you, you look at these projections people have and, you know, by year three or your escape velocity and, you know, hearing your story, I think that's actually more reflective of reality where it isn't like that in most cases. And mm -hmm. it really is those long, hard yards and staying in the game. And mm -hmm. I guess in GeoComply's particular case, you know, you you extended the runway long enough to stay in the game until PASPA was repealed. So I want to, I guess, fast forward to 2018 and maybe look back on the five years since then and ask you, I guess, as you look back on these last five years since PASPA's repeal, what were, I guess, your expectations for the regulated U.S. market versus reality here five years into to this journey? It's interesting. I, I don't know. I took the view in late 2017 that PASPA would get struck down. And once we'd taken that view, we really set our direction, assuming that it would. And 
we, we, we plan some moves ahead, like if this, then that, then that, then that. So there was a couple of players that were in the sports betting space that would rapidly expand that we didn't have contracts with. We weren't integrated with. So we made it a priority to get the contracts done, get the integrations done, be ready, like across the board. And, and like DraftKings sports betting business was an example of that. Um, DraftKings also had made the decision that they may as well proceed on the basis that Casper was going to get struck down because that was the only game in town probably at that time. So, you know, we made sure with DraftKings that we were working with them really early. And uh, when Casper was going to be struck down, you know, we knew what we were going to be doing, right? The whole thing was planned out. We got to the stage where we knew all the days in the calendar when the Supreme Court would could come back with a, with a decision. And we said, okay, it's actually only like seven possible days that there could be this decision on. And when it, if, when it happens, because we were just only assuming for the decision to be strike down, um, when it happens, then everybody will want to talk about it, right? It will be the story in the industry. So why don't we work out who would be really good panelists and set up a webinar and book everyone for that webinar for these like seven, nine days, whatever it is. And uh, about four or five days into that list, hey, presto, the news comes, Pasper struck down. Within three, four hours, you know, we just marketed, okay, you want to know what's going on? We've got this webinar, bang. And then there we were, all ready to go. And, you know, it was so interesting because, and I think that the webinar is still recorded somewhere and it's out there. And it's interesting, if you really want to know the answer to your question, you, you just have to watch the webinar because we recorded it the, the day. And we had all our stuff ready to go. So in that sense, you know, has everything panned out the way I expected? Well, yes, because we really did expect that. And we, we, we were planning for it. But at some point, I think my expectations have been exceeded because you can't sit there in 2017 and say, yeah, this is obviously going to be a $20 billion GGR market in 2023. It's just mad. Right, it's just impossible to imagine that you're going to go that fast. Because I mean, iGaming in the US was seen as such a second cousin, third cousin to the rest of the iGaming world. I mean, the the, the CEO of of Gamesys, uh, Lee Fenton, would always complain to me about why he was in New Jersey. Why am I in New Jersey? It's costing me a fortune. There's no point. Like it's just so irrelevant. And that's how everyone felt about their, their Jersey business. They they kind of felt they had to be there strategically, but it was a pain in the ass. It was losing the money. It was restricting what they were doing elsewhere. And then of course, for including Betfair, which was it's just, you know, Fangel now and Flutter, but they were there for many years, you know, they had that skin in the game. No one predicted it would ever get as big as it is now and as successful. And the the way in which states recognize that they have more to gain than losing regular from from regulated sports betting, no one predicted the rollout would be that fast. I mean, you could sort of straight line it to a certain degree, but we have exceeded that. And, And I never imagined in my wildest dreams that it would be that big. I mean, logically, if if you look at where the numbers go, it ends up that big. But I just don't like, maybe I'm not comfortable with dreams that big. So I, I, I was okay planning for a dream, which I thought was pretty big. And then I thought, well, if it happens, we'll work out the rest later because we'll be set up for it. But I'm not going to start thinking about that because that just seems so remotely impossible that there's no point. 
you know, it's kind of funny looking back on it that I, I was also very early involved with the founders of Evolution. And I was with them through their various projects before Evolution. And I can tell you explicitly that we always felt when I say we, like me and the, the, the early guys in Evolution, we always felt that Live Dealer was a better proposition. If you're going to lose money, lose money in a product where you're getting more value from it. Like, you know, why not? But I don't think they would ever have dreamed Evolution would become like the biggest gambling company in the world, right? Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, I've had my, I've, I've been exposed to these massive success stories very early. And I can tell you exactly the mentality of the founders because I knew them. I was there. I was with them before, in the middle, not, not so much now anymore. But no one ever, I mean, may, maybe Anna would have imagined it would get this big. She, she dreams more big, expensive dreams than I do. But yeah, way beyond my expectations. So I guess I answered that question about 20 times. So hopefully that's clear. Well, and just just to just to quantify it with a bit of data here, I just pulled it up while you were answering that last one, David. But I mean, a couple of months ago, I think we we crossed the threshold of two hundred and fifty billion dollars in cumulative bets taken over the last five years since PASPA's repeal. But uh, actually, just last week, or actually just the other day, rather, after NFL Week One, GeoComply data uh, showed that there was a fifty six percent increase year over year from Week One last year at the start of NFL season, and. You know, it just goes to show, I mean, for as much rapid growth as there been, there seems to be no signs of it slowing down. And, you know, sometimes day to day, we lose sight of it. And you have to take a step back to really appreciate just how fast this has taken off. It's a massive success story. There's no question. And the first year or so after we launched in Jersey, I think we were doing 300,000 transactions a month, right? And the first week of NFL, we did like 250 million. You know, it's, it's crazy. Okay, so I guess, you know, that's the arc of, of the story up, up until now in, in very broad strokes, as much as we could do in, in 25 minutes here. But I want to maybe shift and talk a little bit about, I guess, just your journey on, on maybe a bit more of a personal level and just a few questions around that, David. You know, I guess just hearing some of the, the anecdotes and, and stories you've shared so far, there's obviously a lot of ups and downs throughout the course of the journey. And the same can be said probably for any founder at any stage of their journey. So, you know, I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you maintain motivation and stay focused, particularly during the tough times in your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, well, I think I can speak for a lot of founders by saying, you know, sometimes you just have no choice, right? You've got no alternative. You, you just have to keep going. I think, you know, if I'd had other options, I would probably have taken them, you know, being frank, right? But we were fully committed and, you know, we'd moved to the U.S., you know, we'd our child was born in the U.S., in Vegas, and, uh, you know, we bought a house there. We had really committed to this project. And I, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we, we wanted to build our own business in the beginning was that for me and Anna, there's also a perception that, well, certainly for me, I won't speak for Anna, then, that I'd sort of become mildly unemployable. And I think if you talk to the folks that had employed me in my career at that point, they're like, yeah, yeah, once was enough. Don't want David again, you know. Uh, you know, being an, an opinionated Brit that kind of, you know, is passionate about what I do, you know, it's always going to be abrasive. And um, I, I kind of felt that there, there really wasn't anything else that, that I was going to be doing. Um, I don't think I couldn't see a proposition that would have taken me away to do something else. You know, we were we were committed for, for one reason or the other. And that keeps you motivated, right? Commitment. Commitment is its own reward. And once you've committed to something, you don't agonize about, well, I could do this or I could do that. Is this right? Is that right? You know, you commit, your mind is quiet, you just go. It might suck, 
but your mind is quiet because you've committed. And, I, and I'll always say that to founders or people working in companies when they're having a difficult time. It's like, you know, are you committed or you're not committed? Do you want to commit to this? Because if you do want to commit to it, do yourself a favor. Just commit, give yourself a time period, set yourself some goals and just let your mind go quiet. And whether you succeed or not, you'll enjoy it a lot more simply by having committed. Interesting. And, you know, you sort of alluded to this a few minutes ago uh, with your story about the New Jersey launch and, you know, you had your newborn there. I guess to me, just thinking about that from the perspective of what is often called work-life balance or perhaps lack thereof, wondering if you can share your perspective on work-life balance for entrepreneurs. And I mean, is it even achievable? Is it is it the sort of pie in the sky thing that doesn't exist? I mean, how do you sort of straddle all the commitments to the business while also commitments in life in parallel and, and not drop the ball along the way? Well, I mean, I think it's 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 as important to balance out your personal life as it is to balance out your professional life. And you know, for me and Anna, because we we wanted to 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 found a business so we could actually do it kind of with each other to be together in marriage, and also to to pick and choose the time that we spend in work and and also with our family. When it's your own business, like you can you take the kids with you, you do this, you do that, because you know it's just your business and that's how it is. But you know, I, I hear a lot from really successful folks. They say, oh, yeah, I suck at looking after the kids. I let my wife manage it. Or, you know, I I, I, I just let my wife do the cooking because I'm terrible at cooking. And, and they kind of create this narrative that they can't do those things, right? And the narrative can be, well, like, my work is so intense. I can't do those things. And I think the reality is that's it's bullshit. I mean, it's complete bullshit. You do what you set your mind to. And if you can get away with not committing to the family side of life, a lot of guys will. And and, and women too, vice versa, right? But both are capable of it, but it's mostly the men who do it. And I think it's not easy. It's really hard. You know, you've got to balance so many things. But doing a startup successfully is all about balancing things. Mm. You have to balance the personal life as well. What I would say, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, it is, I always make a point saying to, to folks when they join us on the internship program or the graduate program, everyone talks about work-life balance. And it is important. It's important to me and Aaron. It's important to what we try and create in the culture of the company. But having work-life balance isn't the same as being half-assed about your career. And nine times out of 10, when someone that I hear talk about work-life balance, it's basically like, well, I don't take my job that seriously. I don't think I should take my job that seriously. I actually think it's lame if you take your job that seriously. I think you should take your personal life as seriously as your work, and you shouldn't take your work as seriously. And the reality is, don't be half-assed in your personal life. Don't be half-assed in your professional life. Because if you're half-assed in your personal life, you know what's going to happen. And if you're half-assed in your professional life, you know what's going to happen. And don't think that's a virtue. It's not. Particularly, again, where we are in the Pacific Northwest, where you have these kids that have had so much given to them and have so much opportunity. And when it comes to the chance to rev their engines and see how far they can take their career, they kind of think, well, you know, I don't really think I should be working that hard or trying that hard because, you know, there's more to life than that. I'm like, there's so much that the world has given you and you kind of owe it to see how far you can take that potential for yourself and for your community and, and, and so on. But I think it's, it's, it gets misconstrued a lot. And uh, so on the one hand, I'm saying two things. One, I'm saying like work-life balance is very important. And, and I don't think, you know, anyone should use work as an excuse for, for not committing to their personal life. It's difficult, but everything about 
being a founder is difficult. You just have to make it work. It's got to be a priority. And work has to be a priority. So um, you got to stay fit. you got to stay healthy. you got to do what you can for the personal relationships around you. Um, and you've got to do what you can to make your, your professional work a success. Yeah, well, well Other said. Other opinions then. are available, but those are mine. There's no wrong answers here, David. Um, the other thing I want to ask about, again, from the perspective of, of founders, right? I mean, part of the founder journey is learning to become comfortable with rejection. Um, some might call it failure, but let's call it rejection here. Um, you know, rejection from investors, rejection from potential partners, rejection from potential customers, the list goes on. Um, you know, based on your experience, uh, what advice would you give for entrepreneurs listening that are facing some rejection in their lives in some context or another? We obviously hear stories of people that, you know, pitched to 8,742 VCs and didn't get anywhere. And yeah. I think there's, you know, rejection comes in lots of different forms. It's not as simple binary as like, will they invest, won't they invest? It can be lots of different ways. Like, did that person you wanted to hire join you? Did that magazine editor take that article that you wanted them to take? Yeah. You know, when you, you you pitched X or what, pitch X or Y, and they, they didn't take it. And I think that there's no shortage of disappointments rather than just the binary, well, I you know, made all these pitches and didn't get any money. I, I would wrap the whole thing into, into that comment I gave earlier, which was that you know, being a founder is a humbling experience. If you don't start humble, you you end humble pretty quickly. And I, I say that as someone that my friends, if they're watching this, would just be laughing at the thought of me describing myself as humble. But you, you have to. I mean, I remember going to a Power 50 event, uh, which the eGaming Review used to have in to south of London. And I had gone to those things as a powerful operator in the past. And this is my first time actually not as an operator. And I got I got a freebie from the guys there because of old, old time's sake. And um, when I went, there was a guy that used to work for me and he saw me like just hustling around the room with a laptop, just trying to get someone's attention and tell them, do you know how important your location for gaming is? And he said to me, David, what are you doing? You look ridiculous. Like, have you got no self-respect? And I think that that concept of how much you're prepared to humiliate yourself for what you're doing is actually a mark of success because there's founders that I know and senior people I know that let opportunities go past them because their pride was too great. They wouldn't ask for help. They wouldn't face being rejected, you know, so they would only do what they knew wouldn't actually humiliate them in terms of their version of humiliation, which is asking for something and being rejected and their ego couldn't take it. So I think generally speaking, if you're brittle and you can't, you're not willing to to be humiliated, you know, you are you are not going to achieve as much as otherwise. And, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should be sort of, you know, treat themselves like, you know, a punch bag, but I felt what I was doing was worthwhile. And I, I was proud of myself, even if I looked like a complete fool, right? And I think that's, that's the difference. I, I was doing it for things that I backed that commitment, right? I was committed to it. And commitment is its own reward, right? To, to other people who, like for him, work wasn't really about commitment. It was all about, well, did you get to fly business class? And, and you know, did you get an invite to the Power 50 or whatever? It was. To them, it was all about status. Whereas to me, like, I'm not in it for status. I don't need the status. I like getting a lounge access, sure. But it doesn't give me endorsement as a human being. The other thing I'm curious to get your view on, David, here is the idea of, of you know, continuous learning and I guess self-improvement, right? And and entrepreneurs on a daily basis are, are you know, most often just in the trenches, so to speak, and, and just doing the stuff they need to do to advance things forward a little bit at a time. And 
oftentimes, you know, that that comes at the expense of, of you know, improving themselves and taking the time to, to do things to better position them for success. And I guess if we take the metaphor of sports, which is appropriate here, athletes are, you know, practicing in the gym constantly. They're doing all of these things to improve their performance on their field of play. I guess from the perspective of, of founders, you know, what role do you think, I guess, self-improvement plays and, and where does that fit in a founder's portfolio of all the many different things that compete for their time and attention? It's always a balance, right? So on the one hand, I think training and development is massively powerful and getting access to it is great. Some people use it as an excuse after a while. They get to the point at which they, oh, I need training for that, right? No, no, you don't. Actually, no one who ever learned how to do this was trained to do it. They just had to work it out. Yeah. Music's a really good example, as is sports, but music, you, you know, you look at the songs written by, you know, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, whatever it is, like, they were kids, what the hell did they know, right? And yet they still did this stuff that's amazing. Same with great writers. I mean, some of the best work they did is right at the beginning of life when they didn't know anything. So, you know, not knowing what you're doing is very rarely an impediment to success. So I don't believe lack of training and development or lack of access is going to hold you back. But it's great if you can get it. And I, I love it. And, and I, uh, I'll give great credit to, to the things that I've done in my life where I have learned a lot. I would also say that what I say to, to our team is um, no one should really worry if they made a mistake, right? You know, let's say you, you're you a DevOps engineer, you cut and paste the wrong thing and suddenly the application goes dead and a complete shitstorm follows. You know, if you, if you make that mistake and you learn from it and you develop a process, it can never happen again and you've got better knowledge and you train that for people around you, that's great. What happens is when folks make the same mistake more than once, and half the time that's not a lack of training, it's not a lack of development. It's it's different. It's 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 more about mentally engaging and taking responsibility for for that mistake happening and 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 how did it happen and what did I do and what could I do? So for founders, I, I think the question they got to ask themselves is: Are you seeing a pattern where the same mistake is happening? And let's say, let's say you've done this pitch to 350 investors and you haven't got a yes from any of them. Is it all the investors' fault or is it your fault? Are you talking to the wrong investors? Are you in this hamster wheel where you think that's what you have to do and you keep doing it as opposed to coming off the hamster wheel and thinking, okay, what am I trying to do? What do I need? Do I need these investors or is there a different way to, to do it? And what assets can I bring that are going to give me a different result rather than just this constant failing? So I think that sense of reflection about can you do things better? Now, I, I had a, a real advantage in this because I'm married and I work with my wife and it's this constant presence of someone who can find things that I could do better and perhaps suggest it's my fault it's not working. Not necessarily tell me what I should do to make it better, but you know, I think working as a husband and wife team or any kind of partnership is really important because, you know, founders, they need each other. You need you, you need that support. It's a lonely place, as everybody knows. And, and for me and Anna, having that support through each other and, you know, I, I joke about the pressure she put on me to get better and better and stuff. But it it is true. And I think it would be true with, with any kind of founder relationship. Awesome. We're getting towards the uh, home stretch here, David. So let's shift back to talk about GeoComply itself. I guess, you know, 10 years on in the journey and, and no signs of slowing down, um, you know, things are bigger than ever, moving faster than ever. You know, how as an organization are you thinking about innovation and continuing to stay front and center and, and continuing to innovate and staying on the bleeding edge of everything it is GeoComply does? 
Well, I mean, I'm I'm less active in in GeoComply these days than I, than I used to be. You know, Anna's back as a CEO, and and I I really pick a few projects, or I'm given a few projects. I wish I had the luxury of picking, but you know, having a bit of time and space does give me the opportunity to to pan out a little bit and see what's happening. And because GeoComply is, is quite a big beast now, like 250 million transactions in the first week, you know, it take, takes quite a lot of process to, to handle that. So a lot of folks get into what they're doing, right? And they don't necessarily have a, a chance to look at what's happening and what's going to happen. So for me, I, I, I really try and stay connected one way or the other to what's happening. I find I've actually found it very interesting when I go to conferences I I try and talk to people that I've never met before. So, you know, if some person that you know says this weird guy just came up to me out of nowhere, started asking me who I am, what I'm doing, it's probably me. And I I think there's so much innovation that's still coming in the sector and and the thing that I hope runs through GeoComply to its very core is that, you know, we want to help operators, entrepreneurs to succeed. We want to help them open up new markets. I mean, the illegal market in the US and North America is still huge. The, you know, whether it's street cash or whether it's offshore, whatever it is, there's there's so much still to, to bring onshore. And there's so many emerging business models that are still, you know, they're not really regulated. People are spending money and they're, they're, they're just beginning to find their way into into the market. And I think GeoComply can can help with that. And and in, in terms of international markets, Brazil and Argentina are doing a lot of really interesting things. Payments is a fascinating space where, I mean, you have the, the illegal market nearly entirely depends on crypto for depositing and withdrawal. And and as a as a customer of these offshore sites, those customers can deposit withdrawal like faster than they can with DraftKings or Fangio. You know, like you can't use an Amex card. Citibank historically has blocked deposits for their users, but you can just go and bet with your Bitcoin instantaneously. And yet, if you like Bitcoin, or whatever, 8, 10, 15% of the US you know, owns cryptocurrency, you can't use it to deposit with DraftKings or Fangio. And, and if you look at the, you know, the methods used to deposit to the regulated gaming market today, it's like 35, 40% is ACH. I mean, ACH is with full credit to the ACH companies that service that market, and they're doing a good job because they've got 35% market share. I mean, it is a very awkward experience for anyone to go through, right? It's, it's really difficult. So I, I think for, for GeoComply, we, we like solving problems. We like solving puzzles. And there's plenty of puzzles left. And I hope we'll, I hope our reputation in another 10 years will be about how many puzzles we help solve for our customers and, and how we continue to help, you know, grow the market and take it in, in the right direction. Yeah. And, and one other thing I want to talk about, I guess, just in terms of the, the puzzle geo complies, enabling its customers and partners to solve, you know, you, you've expanded, I guess, the capability through the recent acquisition of OneComply. Shout out to Cameron and Aaron and the team there. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that, David. As I understand it, it was GeoComply's first acquisition. So starting to dip your toes in the water of, of MA. And I guess just looking ahead, does this signal a bit of a shift in strategy? And I guess also for folks listening that might not be familiar, can you just quickly comment as well as to what additional capabilities the OneComply acquisition allows for, for GeoComply? We were customers of OneComply, and I mean, it's a great product. I mean, I can tell you as someone who's licensed in, I don't know, 20 jurisdictions now, something like that, um, it has made such a huge difference to my life. Like, no longer am I, you know, submitting for one jurisdiction, and then six weeks later, submitting for another one, and they say, okay, we need seven years worth of bank statements. I said, but I just, I just gave you that. They said, yeah, but we sent them. I said, well, well 
what did, did didn't you keep a copies and they said no <laughs> what and then because i'm in canada when i get fingerprinted i was often told like i had to go in person so i'd be like in the police station in downtown las vegas you know trying to get fingerprinted with all kinds of interesting characters you know constantly scrabbling like where where's the birth certificates and where's the marriage certificate I mean, it, it was a nightmare. Like, I would have to clear my afternoon, days, just to do one jurisdiction, and then there'd be another one, then another one. Uh, and when I traveled abroad, I always had to get fingerprints. So I'd have to give half a day for each trip to get fingerprinted. Now, it's so much easier, so much better. I, I mean, I, I update the system every couple of months with latest bank statements. Everything's there. It's in one place. You know, you fill in the form um, for one jurisdiction. And then when you want to do the next jurisdiction, it automatically pulls all the data you've filled in the first time. And then if there's any differences, just fill that in. So in terms of, I mean, I spoke to um, a lady called Katie Lieber, who's been in the, the gaming industry for a very long time as a lawyer. And she was saying that she had to get recently um, licensed in one jurisdiction. It's the first time she'd done it as a customer of one compliance. And she said the, the process went from taking months to days. So as a customer of one compliant, we loved it. Brilliant. And our view is everyone should be on one compliant. Now, what's it going to take for everyone to get to one comply? Well, probably a lot of marketing, a lot of support. And Geo Comply had that. So like, okay, well, come in, join, join the crew and let us take you where you deserve to go because it's a brilliant product. And um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 everyone that uses one comply never wants to go back. And everyone that doesn't use one comply, the good news is things are only going to get better for you. So yeah, for 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 GeoComply is a very natural first acquisition. I'm sure there will be more. Anything that helps solve problems for our customers, uh, I think is is good and well within our wheelhouse. Awesome. And I want to close today, David, by talking a little bit about um one of the projects you're championing right now within GeoComply, which is the Challenger series. And couple of weeks from now, uh, us and, and what is it, 25,000 of our friends will convene in Vegas for the annual event known as G2E. And GeoComply is hosting an event called the Challenger Series, which is really geared towards startup founders. And I was lucky enough to attend the New York version of the event uh, earlier this year. And I have to say, it was absolutely my favorite part of that week in, in a week full of really wonderful things. So it was an awesome event. I want to just get, I guess, your perspective on, you know, why you're doing this. And, and if you can also give folks listening a bit of a, a sense as to, you know, what the benefits are, what people can expect that are lucky enough to get uh, welcomed into the room for, for the Challenger series. Well, I mean, I, the Challenger series fulfills one really important role, which is that I, I wish it had been there at the beginning of our journey. And I really wish it had been, been there at the beginning of many people that I know's journey and the ones that got shafted, right? That didn't need to. And that their journey ended not as well as it should have done. And they're great founders, great products. But the reality is a lot of people that you meet along the way don't have your best interests at heart. If you look at the, the communication about what you should do and, and when, like almost all the communication, like best practice, is, is written by non-founders. It's by the you know the, the the investment bankers, the VCs, the PE, and they say you know you should do it like this because once you get to this level, this is the correct way to do it. And then mysteriously, you play things out, and everything you've done suits the PE and the VC guys, and and the founders get screwed. And as a founder, you don't have access to your pick of lawyers and your your pick of advisors, and you might get stuck with a bad consultant or a bad lawyer or a bad accountant, and you end up in a really nasty hole. But the thing is, most of the mistakes made are the same mistakes 
And the, the premise of the Challenger series is to bring founders who, who've been there and lived through it, and sometimes successfully, and sometimes less successfully, because they're both very important stories. You don't learn anything from success, right? You, you learn from failure. And so that the next generation of founders, they can make their own mistakes. They don't have to make the mistakes that we make. Just make some new ones. Don't, don't repeat the same ones. And to bring a bit more power back to the founders. Like, it seems weird to kind of unionize the community of founders. But frankly, I, I think that the, the community is real. It can help each other. I don't see why founders who have created massive value in their companies should not benefit more. And I think if investors um, want to benefit, then they have to do more. They have to do more to create the success of these companies. Giving a founder like so much money that eventually they succeed, but the founders, founders diluted down to nothing, is not how things should play out. And understanding how to approach these investors in a way that you're not starstruck and you don't get led down the wrong path is, is really what we're trying to do. So I think the founder series is really about trying to get some truth and some candor, some radical candor. You know, I think Nigel Eccles mentioned this at the last session we had in New York. He said he didn't really realize quite how many people that were working for him were actually talking up their own book and had their own interests at heart rather than than his. Um, and those stories don't get told enough. And investors get the opportunity to to repeat some kind of unscrupulous behavior because the founders just, that, that knowledge doesn't pass on, and I think it should. So hopefully with these sessions, we can we can pass on that and, and find a way to support the next generation of founders so that, you know, in 10, 20 years, when you look at the value that these folks have created, it's gone to them rather than investors that have somehow by hook or by crook got a free ride. Well, as I said, uh, I was at the last one. I'm going to be at this next one. And for anybody listening, uh, check the show notes. We will include a link for registration to the Challenger series. As I said, it is a tough ticket to get. Uh, so uh, submit submit We're your information. We're very nearly full already. I think there's okay. probably about 15 slots left in the whole show. So, yeah. Well, well, if anybody's lucky enough to get in, uh, it's going to be a fantastic event. David, uh, we're going to tie off here. But before we go, any last words, any final thoughts, anything you want to leave with people before we sign off for today? No, I mean, I just I, I admire everyone that takes on the challenge of being a founder. It's incredibly hard. And um, hang in there. <laughs> what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or something like that. And Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining today and uh, being the first guest on this new series. I I've really enjoyed this conversation, David. So thank you for the time. Great. Cheers, Jesse.